So I usually have a really good grasp of this one main point to the text that we're looking at. And as Russ pointed out, we're finishing up the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're visiting here, we've been walking through Corinthians. We took a break. We picked it back up again, but we're just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're going to finish it up in all of chapter 16 this morning. And there is, I think, one main idea. There's a theme we're going to see in this passage. But there's also a couple different themes. There's a number of things Paul touches on here in this chapter. And so I am going to highlight one particular theme that I do see in this text and I think we're all going to see. But I want to make note that we're not going to get all of it. By nature, there's going to be, I think, a couple questions maybe left unanswered, a couple topics not fully touched on. So I want, with that said, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is God's word. I'm going to start in chapter 15, verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive... I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey, wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Yeah, I, I really, I guess you could say I enjoy the song Come. Come now long expected Jesus. Sorry, I know that sniffling, I find it obnoxious, but when you hear sniffling in microphones, it drives me crazy. Hannah, I know that you don't like that either, so. But singing, come, long expected Jesus. Hearing Paul write, come. Our Lord, come. And there's something about that like, that's moving. I'd rather not be moved, if I'm honest, but... But as we look at this text, chapter 16 of the book of 1 Corinthians, we are going to see one theme. I think the theme we see is work. The theme we see is labor. And the main question we are going to address is what is the response, the right response, to the reality of the resurrection? That resurrection is a real hope for all who look to Christ in faith. What, does the, what is the demanded response? If this is true, how then shall we live? I wanted to start with a, just a comment that I, I haven't forgotten. I think I heard about four or five years ago in a, in a class by a, a Bible scholar and teacher named Bruce Watke. Uh, in the class, he was teaching on Proverbs and he was teaching about wisdom. And in that lesson, he, he moved to a wisdom psalm Psalm 49. And he was pointing out that in our youth, particularly in this day and age, we make our, our physical attractiveness, our appearance, really the most important things about ourselves. We treat that as ultimate. That becomes an idol for many of us today. And he was pointing out, now if you don't know Bruce Watke, he's a rather aged man, very wise, but he's old. And he was pointing out that age puts things in perspective. When you get older... Things get put in perspective. And actually, one of you in the church, and I won't say who because you're on the older end, I don't want to embarrass you, but you said something almost the same that he did. But when you get older, you realize what matters. And in Psalm 49, the psalmist invites the readers, he invites those reading and singing and listening to this psalm to listen to his wisdom, this riddle that he says. He says three different things in the psalm. In verses 6 to 8, he says that princely mansions, the finest home on earth, is going to fall apart. He says that wealth, money, does not last. And he says that even our bodies, whether you are foolish or wise, will see decay. We'll all end up dying one day. But tucked away in the psalm, he also says in verse 15, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. So we live in a world where we are very aware, just as John says, this world in its present form is passing away. We live in a world that Paul calls transient. It's temporary. Many things around us, we are very aware, do not last. The psalmist reminds us of some of those things. But it is good news. It refreshes the soul that there is something that does last. The souls of men and women will last forever. All will be raised one day to resurrection. Some to resurrection life, eternally, 
and some to resurrection death, some to punishment and wrath, justly deserved. This is a sobering reality. And it's what we looked at last week. Really, for the last three weeks, Aaron has been digging into the resurrection. Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the longest chapters in the book, is all about resurrection. And the climax of that whole chapter was verse 58. Therefore, that's how he starts that verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, your, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, as I thought about the rest of this book, how Paul finishes the letter of the first Corinthians, there's no way Paul can move from this verse and this amazing resurrection glory to, and just forget about it. I think that Paul is carrying this reality of resurrection and the labor we are therefore to be engaged in into chapter 16. In fact, we're going to see he raises three examples. He raises three people as examples. Himself, Timothy, Stephanus, and I think really also Apollos as people who are engaging in the labor of the Lord. He holds them up as examples, I think, to the Corinthian church, saying this is an example of the labor we are to be engaged in. This is the labor that lasts, the labor that endures. And also, I think in verses 1 to 4, we're going to see something about work as well. And so if there's any theme that I might pull from this chapter, I'm focusing on the labor I think Paul is calling and inviting the Corinthians to engage in. In light of the resurrection, if the resurrection is really true, if there is resurrection life, how then should the church live? I think there's four things Paul points out in this text. First, it makes Christians generous people. We are a generous people. We see that in verses 1 to 4. Second, in verses 5 to 18, sorry, 5 to 12, we see that it makes us a mission-focused people. In verses 15 to 18, it makes us a servant people. And finally, I originally thought this could be fit in. I'm not going to try to fit it in. Paul just closes the letter. He writes his greetings and makes some closing comments. But he reminds us that we are a people filled and empowered by his grace, needy of his grace. So, first, again, how then should we live? What is the right response if the resurrection is a reality in the Christian church? Labor. Labor in the Lord. So Paul not only taught that explicitly, in chapter 15, after he explained the gospel in verses 1 to 10, Paul says of himself, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So his response, his response to the gospel, the good news that Christ had died for his sin and risen again to new life, it moved him to work. So Paul taught that, he taught that in his letter, but he also demonstrated it with his life. And Paul, I really believe, expects the same of the Corinthian church. He invites them into the same labor in this letter. And we're going to see that. So first, he invites them to join as a people who are generous. In light of the gospel of resurrection, the people of God are to be generous. So, verses 1 to 4. Let me read them again. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now when we see the phrase, now concerning, this is when Paul moves to different 
topics in his letters. So now he's moving to this collection for the saints. So now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside some money and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go, then they will accompany me. So what we see here is really the first time in Paul's letters that we see this introduction to this gift, this collection of money that was going to be given to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And Paul will mention it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. He'll mention it in Romans chapter 15 after he finishes that letter. And it's a gift that he's collecting on behalf of the believers in Jerusalem. It might have been related to a famine, but in general there were poor saints in Jerusalem for whom Paul was asking the churches that he planted among the Gentile peop- Gentiles to contribute to. And this was a big deal to Paul. When Paul planted these churches, we see that he also invited the Galatian churches to take part. He saw this as something that really mattered, something of great importance. This gift, this collection, one, it showed the, the genuine unity between Jew and Gentile. When he asked these uh, Gentile converts to give money to this collection, they don't know these people. In fact, they're very different than these people. The only reason they're giving money to these people in Jerusalem is because the gospel has gone forth from Jerusalem, this gospel of resurrection hope. Therefore, they should share in the, their physical blessings with those from whom they've received these spiritual blessings. The gospel hope has come to them and therefore, if they have excess and there's physical needs, they should generously give to those from whom the gospel has come from. So Paul simply does that. Uh, if you want to look at Paul's explanation of this letter, I just want to, to meditate on this for a minute. What has moved them? We've already talked about it. Aaron's talked about it this morning. But what has moved them to give this gift to Jewish Christians across the world who they, they don't even know? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, he, he says that their gift was motivated by this. He says, You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So last week, Aaron, I wasn't here. The, the youth, we were in Hillsborough enjoying Hillsborough sausage and other things and hanging out. But I listened to it, and it's just a very encouraging message. Opening up what Paul teaches about the resurrection bodies everyone who's trusted in Christ will have. Bodies that are perfect. Bodies that will last forever. Bodies that are glorious, that are able to fully enjoy God for who He is. That will dwell in His presence, free from sin, never to die, never to be sick. All of that by the grace of God alone, undeserved. In fact, we deserve sin. We deserve the punishment that sin brings. And yet, Aaron pointed out this great glorious hope that we have. And so Paul, what he's saying here is Jesus Christ was already in those riches. He was with God in glory. He was in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And he left. 
He left that glory. That's what the riches are. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He left the riches of perfect fellowship. No sin. Glory. Why? Was it so he could be worshipped and honored by his creation? No, he left the riches so that he could be scorned, mocked, crucified as a criminal. So that sinners like you and me, we, we are, we were, if you were a Christian now, in poverty that we deserved. It wasn't something that just fell upon us. It wasn't a bad circumstance. It was the result of our sin. And yet for us, he became poor so that we might not die, we might not live in that poverty, but instead enjoy his riches. And those riches are the perfect resurrection body we have through Christ in eternal fellowship with the Father in the new heavens and the new earth. Now that, that is what has motivated this gift. The Corinthians have heard about the gospel. They heard that message from Paul. And they know, so those have responded in faith, that has now moved them to generosity. They want to be a part of this gift to the Jerusalem Christians. They want to give money generously to them because they know who Christ is and what he's done. It moves them towards generosity. But Paul, in this section, he's not touching on the heart. That's already there. He's touching on their heads. They want to be a part of it. They've already asked how they can be a part of it. And so he's telling them, here's some practical advice for what you can do, how you can take part in this gift. So here's what he says. First of all, we learn about generosity, not just the heart behind it, but practically what it looks like in these short verses. He says, first of all, this gift, it was to be for the saints in Jerusalem. It wasn't really for all people. It was particularly for Christians in need in Jerusalem. Secondly, in verse 1, we also see that this gift was an expectation not just for the Corinthian church, but for churches all over that Paul had planted. He also invited the Galatians to take part. In verse 2, we see that the gift was also not spontaneous. It wasn't just a gift because they were emotionally moved. It was something they were supposed to do deliberately every week, taking money out of their hard-earned income, setting it aside so that that money could then be collected and given to those in need. It was a, a deliberate, intentional, weekly activity. And finally, it was a, a flexible gift. In verse 2, we see that it wasn't one flat amount that every Christian in the church had to give. It was a voluntary gift, a generous gift, that each was to give according to their ability. He says, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So, the, the point wasn't that some people would suffer so that others could live in excess. The point was that when some in the church had excess, they would generously give that access to those who were in need so that they wouldn't suffer. And Paul, this, lastly, he says this is a careful gift in verses 3 to 4. So this was a careful gift because it was hand-selected people, people they trusted, who would take this gift to Jerusalem. In fact, Paul says if needed, he would even go with them. They wanted to make sure this gift actually made it to the right people. They carefully did it. So sometimes we need our hearts jolted by the grace of God in Jesus Christ to be generous as we ought to be. But sometimes we need our heads informed, what does that generosity look like? How are we to be generous? P Paul here does both, but he particularly shows us how a generous gift is given. And I thought of a couple different things in application for this generous gift. 
First, I was thinking of the tree of hope. Aaron talked about that earlier. That was kind of the immediate Christmas time application. And I would commend that to you. That's a great thing to do. But then my mind drifted, I think, to the, the church plant. And I was encouraged in that. And I want to put that before us as a church and remind us that this is a good work. This is a right response to the good news of the gospel. A right response is what we've been doing. We've, we've, we've taken time to pray. Our leaders and others in the church have led us. We've had town halls. We've been thinking carefully about what this looks like. Many people in this church have taken money out of your hard-earned labor and said, I'm going to put this towards a church plant. In fact, we're going to end up sending people to this church plant, losing people that we love in this church who will probably go. This is just one big sacrifice on our part. We're losing. We're giving up money, time, effort, and people. All to what end? It's so that other people can hear the gospel. The end goal is that a church will be planted and that others could hear the good news, that they could grow in grace somewhere else where there's not yet a church. This is a good work. This is a right response to the reality of the resurrection. So I just want to say, let's keep doing that. I'm thankful that we as a church have chosen to do that, that the leaders have led us in that. And I want to pray. I think we should all keep praying for that, but pray that God establishes the work of our hands. There are so many barriers that could keep that actually coming to fruition. So pray that God would provide our needs, that God would provide a pastor for that church, that God would provide people from this church who are willing to go and make that sacrifice. All so that God would be glorified by people who respond in faith to the gospel and share in this resurrection glory. So secondly, right in line with this generous giving, I think we see the right response to resurrection hope is that we be a mission-focused people in verses 5 to 12. We be a mission-focused people. So... Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you, even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey, wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes... See to it that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. So before I, I've never studied this passage in depth, and as I studied it this last week, I was surprised, I think, to find that this is a, a very mission-focused text. This is a missionary text. We see into the life of Paul, the missionary. Paul, the one who traveled over the Roman Empire so that people could hear about the gospel. Paul's co-worker, Timothy, who did the same thing. And how the church in the New Testament supported that work, engaged in that work, partnered in that work with him. So what, real, what response does the reality of the resurrection demand in the lives of the Christian church? A zeal for mission. A desire that all people hear this good news about the resurrection. In verses 5 to 12, we have insight into Paul's travel plans. And when we see his travel plans, I don't want everyone to be thinking of a vlog 
like, I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, you see the videos, you see maybe a snapshot of ancient Ephesus, maybe you eat a gyro. This is not what Paul's doing. Paul is giving insight into his missionary strategy and the missionary strategy of his co-worker, Timothy, and how the church could partner with him in that. So first we see in verses 5 to 12, a call to send gospel messengers. A call to send gospel messengers. In verses 5 to 6, we see Paul's heart. He wants to visit the Corinthians. He says that. He might even spend the winter with them. But something else is motivating his decision-making. He says, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. So Paul wants to see the Corinthians. He wants to build them up in the faith, to encourage them, to be with them. And yet what's motivating him is this work that he has opportunity to do in Ephesus. And so he's going to stay there a little bit longer. And he also says that one of the reasons he wants to come see them is so that, purpose, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Now Paul, he's using the word send in in the NIV. In the ESV it might say help me. You may help me on my journey. Also you may help Timothy, for he's doing the same work. In the NIV it says send me. What Paul is talking about here might, I think one way we could think about it is this. If you've ever had to ask for money, it is a very sometimes humbling, difficult thing. If you've ever raised support to do some sort of trip, it's always a little bit awkward. And so I think what Paul might be doing here is using a bit of an innuendo, if that's the right word for it. He's using a different phrase to say, I need you to give me money so that I can pay the fare to get somewhere. I need you to give me a place in your house to stay because I don't have a place to live when I'm in Corinth. He's using this phrase, send, or help, in in short, to basically say that. Now that's a lot less embarrassing, isn't it? Help me on my way. Send me on my way. So I think that's what Paul's doing. And that's really the way Paul uses this word, send, throughout his letters. We see the same thing in John. A great example of this is in the letter of 3 John, verses 5 to 8. In that, in that letter, John says this, Beloved, he's speaking to the church. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers in the truth. So John is commending this church because they have hosted and provided for these missionaries, people who have gone out for the sake of the name, and he he tells them to send them on their journey in a way honoring to the Lord. He's asking them to partner with these missionaries. And he says that's a good work. When you do that, you are taking part in their good work. Paul talks about this partnership in sending in the book of Romans. And again, if the gospel is true, if there is resurrection life in Jesus Christ by faith in his name, everyone has to know about it. Everyone must hear. In other words, in Romans, Paul says this, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everybody 
That's the amazing resurrection hope. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They will share in resurrection glory. They will forever be in the presence of God, apart from sin and death, in eternal joy with the Father. But how? How can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one who they never heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? Paul's desire is that the Corinthians partner with him to send him, himself and Timothy and others out to other places that they might hear the gospel and share in the benefits of the gospel through Christ. So we see not only a clear request that they partner with him in this sending activity, but we see why he desires their partnership. Paul is not just going to other cities to do good works. He's not simply going to other cities because he wants to travel. He's not going to other cities because he likes to meet new people and he loves other people. He's going to these other cities because he's a messenger of the gospel. He's proclaiming the good news that all must hear. Uh, If you have a business, I remember I've talked to some of you who are in, in business. When you're starting your business, you send out pamphlets, you send out flyers, you send out salesmen. Our nation, other nations, our embassies, we send out ambassadors. The church sends out missionaries. We send out gospel messengers. So second, the, the call is not just to send. The call is to send out gospel messengers. Verse 7, Paul makes it very clear. He's talking about this work. He says that there's a door that's open for effective work. I think the original language doesn't actually even use the word work. He just says there's this open door and there's many adversaries. But throughout the letters, when Paul says door, an open door, he's talking about the opportunity for the gospel message to be made known. Uh, he uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He also uses it in the book of Colossians, verse chapter 4. He says, Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So, Paul first, he expects them to send himself and Timothy on their way and he expects them to send them because they are gospel messengers. And so this is the heart of the mission that we're called to. This is what our our mission's budget and our mission is as a church. Our church building, it's a good thing that we're building onto it, but our church building will one day fall apart. Our cars are currently falling apart or will one day fall apart. Our bodies are physically decaying. Our treasure is going to rust. Our clothes will be moth-eaten. But the book of Proverbs says, he who wins souls is wise. And they are wise because there is something that lasts, the souls, the lives of men and women. And so, here's this exhortation from Charles Spurgeon. He said, then, in light of that, then go, dear friends, and seek to bring your children and your neighbors and your friends and your kinsfolk to the Savior's feet. For nothing will give him so much pleasure as to see them turn to him and live. So practically speaking, 13% of our budget as a church, we all give, maybe not all of us, most of us give, probably all of us give money to the church for the ministry of the church. 13% of those gifts 
goes to missions, the missions budget. The point of that budget is to make the name of Jesus known to all nations, including Olathe, but particularly in places where some people are going to live and die and never hear the good news. One way you can practically be engaged in this work is simply by being a gospel messenger yourself. And all of us are called to that work. Just as Spurgeon's quote points to, we have children, we have family members, we have neighbors. It doesn't have to be awkward. It will probably be awkward. It doesn't have to be. But it can look very different for each one of us. But ultimately, we want everyone we know to know this message, to know the good news that is available in Jesus Christ, eternal life in him, forgiveness of sins in his name, relationship with God through him. We want people to know that. And so we should work towards that. It might take some of us longer than others. So we should be gospel messengers ourselves. But also we should send gospel messengers to all nations. And so that's one thing we do with the missions budget. I was excited when I heard about a a guy named Cody going to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is typically closed to missionaries, closed to the message. And recently it's opened up. And so we support one young man who's going there to a place where many people will live and die and never hear this message. So I just want to encourage us, this is a good work. This is the labor in the Lord that we are called to engage in. And it's a good labor. It's a labor that endures. And so we as a church, I am thankful that we give that money towards that. I want to encourage us to keep doing that and to pray. Uh, a side note, I... I uh, Multiply puts out daily prayer requests. I would encourage you to, to receive those. If you want, I can try and send you the link to how you can get them. It gives you a simple, one paragraph or less way to pray for some missionary somewhere in the world. And I think that's one way we can engage in the work. Simply keeping that on our minds and praying for them in their work. So lastly, it makes us a servant people. The grace of the gospel, the reality of the resurrection makes us generous people It makes us a mission-focused people. And lastly, it makes us a servant people. So I'm going to breeze through the rest of this. But he says, Concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come. He will come when he has opportunity. So two things we learn from this. The divisiveness we read about in in the church of Corinth, it was not a result of the leaders. It was coming up from the members in the churches. Paul and Apollos are not at odds with one another. Paul has amiably reached out to Apollos and asked him to come. And Apollos has said, no, now's not a good time. I'll come when I can. And secondly, I think what's driving Apollos' refusal to come must be his engagement in the work somewhere else. And we're reminded simply, the world doesn't revolve around the church in Corinth. And similarly, the world doesn't revolve around CBC. We are one church among many in in a huge world. And so that's a good reminder for us at any point. Then we get this awesome little sermonette. I've even heard one sermon preached on this text. But Paul just puts it in here, a final comment at the end of his letter. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, or in other translations, be courageous, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You know, those generous gifts and that mission focus apart from love, just like we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, is ultimately empty. But all that we do, all of these works should be done in love. And so this final request that I think we see work highlighted in is verses 15 to 18 where we read about this man named Stephanus. 
So here's what we know about Stephanus. We encountered him in the beginning of the letter of 1 Corinthians. Stephanus is probably a leader in the church. He's probably an elder. He was one of the first converts in the province of Achaia, where Corinth is. And we think he's probably an elder because of how he's described in verse 16. He joins in the work and labors at it. And so here's this elder in the Corinthian church. He's probably the one who's come and visited Paul. He's refreshed Paul and served him. And Paul is telling the church in Corinth, you need to submit to his leadership. You need to be subject to his and the other elders' leadership. And I love why he says so. I just want to simply point out, this is a very different way of thinking than the world. The church operates in a very different way than the world. Here's why, in God's purposes, the Spirit-inspired Word tells the church in Corinth to submit to the leadership of their elders, particularly this guy named Stephanus. It was not because he was a charismatic leader or a great orator. It was not because he was a person of status and wealth and power in the community. It's not because he displays amazing, awe-inspiring spiritual gifts. They're to submit to his leadership because he and those in his household have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Therefore, be subject to such as these and every fellow worker and laborer. So I don't know if you caught that. It's kind of strange. Christians submit to servants. That's weird. In the Christian church, we are a people who submit ourselves voluntarily. We subject ourselves to servants. That is very otherworldly. It's very strange. It's different than the way the world operates. But that's, what we, that's the way we live in light of the resurrection. Because the one who died and rose again, the one to whom all things will be subjected, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords, came not to be served. Sorry, yes. Came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And knowing him enables us and empowers us to live rightly. And I think that encouragement we saw in verses 13 to 14, it reminds us serving requires strength. It's not a weak thing to serve. It's a strong thing. It requires strength to do. And so we are a servant people. We submit ourselves to the leaders of the church as they lead the church in accordance with God's word. And ultimately the goal is that we as a people are submitting ourselves to God as those leaders lead us in submitting to his word. So we're ultimately a people trying to submit ourselves to God. And so I just wanted to make one final comment. I'm really thankful for the seven elders we currently have and other elders in the past who served at this church. They, they aren't necessarily charismatic people. They aren't people of wealth and stature. They aren't necessarily gifted spiritually. I actually think most of them fit a number of these things. But we submit to them not for those reasons. We submit to them because they serve us. They serve us in leading this church faithfully in accordance with God's word. And the more I see into the work that the elders do, the more thankful I am for them. And so, one, we submit to them as they lead us in accordance to God's word. That's, that's an important caveat. They are seeking as best they can to lead us in accordance with God's word, so we submit to them. But secondly, that's not easy work. This word labor throughout the whole passage and throughout the New Testament is a work that means toilsome, wearisome, exhausting work. It's labor. It's hard. And so I want to 
do what this passage calls us to do. It says in the end, give recognition to such people. And so I want everyone to get your wallet out. No, that was a joke. Okay. I don't even know how to recognize them, to be honest, in this case, because I know these men aren't doing it for money. Only two of them are do, do it, and we should pay those men who serve in this church, who labor as elders in teaching and preaching. That's also biblical, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But the rest of them do it for no pay, no compensation here on earth. They do it because they're seeking to obey God's word. And so I don't know if this means shaking their hand, giving them a hug, giving them round of applause, not here, that might be awkward somewhere else. Do something to recognize them and say thank you. Thank you for leading us. The, the names of our elders are on the back of the bulletin and some of you also know those who served as elders before them. Take time to recognize them. Thank them for their leadership and service to the church. So the closing greetings, I don't want to try to force them into this theme. And so let me just read them to you and make one comment to finish. The churches of Asia send, your, send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with the holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The two verses that stick out as a little bit strange, the rest of this is typical greetings written in Paul's letters and in other letters. The two verses that stick out are verses 22 and 24. And it's a, a sobering. Paul says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. And I honestly, this morning, and yesterday, I was like, Paul, why would you end the letter like that? Come on. I want to finish a sermon with some encouraging grace. And here you are cursing people. So the reality of this is, sometimes we think there's a contradiction between love and this statement that Paul makes. How could God, how could Paul be a loving person and yet say, those who have no love for the Lord, let them be accursed? Now, there's no contradiction between those two things. If you know the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ, you know that apart from that message, there is only one end. There's destruction. And so for those in the church of Corinth who hear the gospel and who say, I don't want that. I don't want this grace offered in Jesus Christ. I want something else. Paul says there is no hope. This word cursed is an Old Testament word. It's connected to an Old Testament word for destruction. And so Paul is saying, if you turn from the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, there is no hope. There is no end. There's only destruction. And yet, in the same breath, Paul says, the grace of the Lord be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So they go together. Paul's love for them is what has spurred, them, spurred him to write that final sentence. It's a warning. It's a warning to any in the church of Corinth who are continuing in disobedience, who are tempted to ignore the gospel in Paul's letter. And he says, there's no hope outside of Christ. Love the Lord. Continue in the Lord. Hold fast to the Lord. So how are we? First of all, if you're not a Christian this morning, I would plead with you, put your faith in Christ. I want to call you, as Christ did, not to labor for the food that toils, but to labor for the bread that endures to eternal life. To trust in Jesus. He would delight. He would be overjoyed if you look to him and his gracious gift to you, should you believe in him. There'll be forgiveness of sins. 
all sin and every sin and eternal life with God forever by his work alone. Turn from sin, turn to Christ in faith and you will find forgiveness. And for the rest of us, for those who are in Christ, how do we live if this message is true? We live as a people who are generous. We live as a people who are committed and zealous for missions. And we live as a people who serve. Let me pray. Lord, this, in some sense, is the end of the letter. I pray that you would use your word to build us up and encourage us. You'd use your word to convict us, not just of sins of commission, but sins of omission. When we are lazy, when we're fearful, Lord, we need to look at the grace of the Lord Jesus, the strength that is available in him the reality of the gospel message and be motivated to love those around us, to be generous, to make this message known to all people. And so I pray, Lord, for the sake of your name, equip us, strengthen us, give us the grace that we need, help us, give us the boldness and courage we need in Christ to be your ambassadors and messengers. Lord, make us generous people. Thank you for those who are generous in this church. Make us more generous, that we would be a church that is zealous about your mission to make the the good news of the gospel known to all people. Lord, we ask that you to bring to fruition the work of this church plant, that you'd make it happen, you'd provide our needs, and that you'd do it so that people would hear the gospel message and grow in godliness in that church. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence and your spirit with us. We just ask for your help. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.